Welcome to the How to Be Awesome at Your Job podcast, the show where brilliant professionals share how to sharpen the universal skills required to flourish at work. Enjoy more career fun, wins, meaning, and money with your host, Pete Mikaitis. Hello, and thanks for joining us here for episode 584 with Francesca Gino. Francesca has got some pro tips on how your curiosity, your asking questions can actually, in fact, be a real asset to you and your career and delight people when you ask those questions. So good stuff out of curiosity. You'll learn one, the mindset shift that leads to great innovation. Two, why our fear of judgment is often overblown. And three, how to resolve conflict peacefully with curiosity. So if you want to check out the show notes or the transcript or the links to items that we've referenced, Visit awesomeatyourjob.com slash EP584. That's awesomeatyourjob.com slash EP584. Now here's Francesca's story. Francesca Gino is an award-winning researcher who focuses on why people make the decisions they do at work and how leaders and employees have more productive, creative, and fulfilling lives. She is the Tandon Family Professor of Business Administration in the Negotiation, Organization, and Markets Unit at Harvard Business School and the author, most recently, of Rebel Talent, Why It Pays to Break the Rules and Work in Life. Gino is also affiliated with the Program on Negotiation at Harvard Law School, the Mind, Brain, Behavior Initiative at Harvard, and the Behavioral Insight Group at Harvard Kennedy School. Gino has been honored as one of the world's top 40 business professors under 40 and one of the world's 50 most influential management thinkers by Thinkers 50. Big thanks to Francesca for sharing her wisdom with us. And big thanks to our sponsors. Check them out. And big thanks to our sponsor, Acorns. Acorns makes it easy to start automatically saving and investing for your future. You don't need a lot of money or expertise to invest with Acorns. In fact, you can get started with just your spare change. Acorns recommends an expert-built portfolio that fits you and your money goals, then automatically invests your money for you. NerdWallet.com, whom I love on these sorts of matters, gives Acorns a whopping 4.7 stars and says, quote, if you want to make the most of your spare change, there's no better place to do that than Acorns. Head to acorns.com slash awesome or download the acorns app to start saving and investing for your future today and we got a legal disclaimer here it may not be representative of all clients tier one compensation provider compensation provides an incentive to positively promote acorns view important disclosures at acorns.com awesome investing involves risk including the loss of principal please consider your objectives risk tolerance and acorns as fees before investing acorns advisors llc acorns is an sec registered investment advisor brokerage services are provided to clients of acorns by acorn securities llc member finra slash sipc for more information visit acorns.com Here's Francesca. Francesca, thanks for joining us here on the How to Be Awesome at Your Job podcast. It's awesome to be here. Thank you for having me. Oh, yes. Well, I'm thrilled to be chatting. And first, I need to hear a little bit about your motorcycle racing hobby. I don't hear too many uh, Harvard professors (laughs) racing motorcycles, or maybe there's a bunch of you. Tell us, what's the story? Yeah, exactly. (laughs) I actually thought that you were going to say, I often don't hear of moms with four small children. (laughs) So uh, they contributed a little bit of putting the hobby to the side since they're still quite small. We'll get back to it. So racing, it's not just riding them, but you're actually trying to beat an opponent with speed. Is What's the story? Yeah. So I think I grew up in a family where the Sunday afternoon activity was sitting on the couch watching races, uh, whether it was MotoGP or any type of races with my dad and brother. And so I think that that stayed in my blood a little bit. And growing up in a small town in Northern Italy where... 
you have a lot of freedom. So I had friends who were older than me and I started using their scooters and motorcycles much earlier than I should say before having the proper driving license for them. <laughs> Maybe this is not a good start. Oh, I'm fascinated. Ready saying about rule breaking right off the start. Well, exactly. Sometimes I try to force a segue between the getting to know you part and the your expertise part, and this makes it easy. So yeah. Exactly. How do you study what you study? <laughs> That's already rebellious. So you're breaking rules. That's one of your main messages in your work and research and writings is that it pays to break the rules rules in work and life. Can you give us some of the most compelling examples or bits of research behind that? Absolutely. I was struck by the fact that I spent a lot of time in organizations and often you go in, or at least I started going in with a set of cynical eyes, if you will. And I would try to pay attention to processes, ways of working or systems that to the eye of a person who doesn't work there really make little sense. They didn't seem optimal. I had all sorts of questions about them. And then I would go to people, leaders and employees alike, and say, why is it that you do things this way? Always the same answer, which was, we've always done it this way. And it's interesting that it's very easy for us to get used to the usual way of working, and it's tough to break away from that. So I wanted to write this book to say, look, there are people out there who are very capable of breaking away from the mold in a way that creates positive change and brings all sorts of benefits to themselves and the organization. Mm-hmm. But, you know, I knew that was what you were going to say in terms of the answer is we've always done it that way, which I think really means we don't actually remember the original purpose and impetus for how this got started. But we're going to keep doing it. <laughs> yeah. And also we stop asking questions. Think about, I, I mentioned that for little children. So I'm in the land of curiosity, pushing boundaries, asking questions. And if you look at the data, you'd see something quite striking. And in my mind also sad, curiosity peaks at the age of four and five, and then it declines steadily from there. Mm. And I thought it can't be true. Maybe when we get into our jobs, uh, the ones that we love, curiosity is going to pop back up. And I was wrong. I collected data across jobs, industries, roles, hundreds of people. And at first, when they start a new job or a new role, you see the curiosity is high, some variation across job, across roles, across locations, but not much. And you go back to the same people eight, nine months later, curiosity had dropped by at least 20% across the board. And I think it's because we conform, we get used to the usual way of working and we stop asking questions. Now, well, I love that you've actually done the research. <laughs> I say actually, not like I'm surprised, but you, but you know, you know, there are authors who borrow for the research of others and authors who do their own research. And you are in the latter category. So I'm going to really have some fun with you here. So how do we measure curiosity and just what is the extent of that decline? Like, is it mm-hmm. like you're half as curious as you were when you were four or five? Or are you like a tenth as curious as you were at four or five? As a scientist at my core, I really puzzled over that data because it was like, what happens? And why is it the kids so naturally ask questions and stay curious, but somehow they grow older, we all grow older and that disappears. And it was kind of an interesting exercise because I recognized that as a, even as a parent, I do things that probably are not good for curiosity. My children ask a question, I give them an answer. Instead of saying, 
why do you think the sky is blue? Or why do you think we have to pay for things when we uh, go out <laughs> to the grocery store? And it's a different way of reacting. Or they make a mistake and you have that worried face that tells them that fundamentally, yes, we're learning, but I would have been happier if we didn't mess up things around the house. Mm -hmm. And so he brought much more attention in my own behavior, my own reactions to what others are doing. And now I'm giving you some example as a parent, but I have equally <laughs> good example in my role as leader of my own group or in the actual interactions that I have with colleagues. How do you react when they say something that uh, you might disagree with? Do you seek to understand and show curiosity or do you just shut them down? And so there are lots of mini opportunities where I think maybe unconsciously, we just shut down the conversation and with it, we shut down curiosity. Oh, that's great. Those subtle things in terms of nonverbal shows of disapproval with our like, facial expression yeah. or our tone of voice. In fact, I'll give you a story that actually comes from a business. It turns out to be a yummy one since it's uh, the restaurant, a three Michelin star restaurant that in 2016 became the best restaurant in the world. Turns out it's an Italian restaurant. So I'm mm -hmm. saying this with a little bit of pride, even if I have nothing to do with it. Uh, but this is a restaurant where the owner and chef that opened the restaurant decided to go to traditional Italian dishes and completely reinvented them. Now, I find that to be profound. First, it took courage. I don't know how much you know about Italians, but I can tell you that two things are true. First, there are lots of rules when it comes to cooking, from all the ways you pair certain type of pastas to certain type of sauces. In fact, I'm married to an American, and to this date, my husband doesn't understand why is it that every time he has pasta with a fish-based sauce, he can't put Parmesan cheese on top of it. <laughs> it's just wrong. You don't do it. It's against the rule. And second, we cherish our old ways, especially when it comes to recipes that have been passed on for centuries. And so here you have a guy who went exactly to that context with an open mind, with curiosity. And he started saying, look, why is it that we cook the dish this way? Maybe it made sense 20 years ago, but not today. And he completely reinvented traditional Italian dishes and has been very successful with that. So quite an inspiring story. And if you spend time with him, you realize that in every interaction, he really takes on the opportunity to look at the what if or why. In fact, there is a beautiful story. It's one of my favorite out of the restaurant when it's a very busy night. And one of his sous chefs is working on the last dessert of the night. And it's a lemon tart. And the name of this sous chef is Taka. He's obsessed with attention to detail. He's Japanese. He really cares about doing his work well. And as Taka is working on this dessert, he's arranging all the different pieces. And all of a sudden, the tart dropped to the floor. Mm. And now you had a smash tart. And at that point, Taka started to panic. But chef Massimo Dutbutura walked into the kitchen and saw the mistake. Now, ask yourself what it is that you would have done. I can tell you that many leaders in his position would have started yelling, but Butura didn't. And not only that, he looked at the plate and then attacked and said, Taka, I think we have a new idea for a new dessert. And sure enough, they come up with a new dessert. It's a deconstructed lemon tart mm -hmm. and is now the most popular dessert at the restaurant. And if you look at it, you look like a smash tart on the plate. And the name for the dessert on the menu is, oops, I dropped the lemon tart. <laughs> it's just a beautiful example of even in situations where there are accident, 
is able to turn them into sources of inspiration. It, I think, requires a shift in mindset. Mm-hmm. Well, that is beautiful. You do sort of see sort of that childlike perspective in terms of, oh, this is interesting that this is all over the floor now, as opposed to this is a disaster that it's all over the floor now. Just to make sure that we check the box, though, can you share how do we measure curiosity and what is the level of the decline from four to being grown up? <laughs> uh, you're going to check yourself, right? So there are scales that scholars have developed to, to measure curiosity. And so it's often self-reported. So I ask you a bunch of questions that allow me to understand in which situations you keep on looking for information because you really want to discover something. And it's not just a learning because there is an objective, but you fundamentally want to uh, get to an answer because of the pleasure of that discovery process. And so there are many different other personality factors that are related to it, like being open to experiences, but curiosity is on its own category, if you will. And if there are people who are interested, I'm happy to share the scales since they exist and you can measure it uh, on yourself. In the data that I collected, I was looking at adults uh, and the drop of 20% were adult from the day they started a new job to 9, 10, some cases, eight months later. And so that's where you see the drop in a way that allows you to ask the question, why is it when we join an organization, it's almost as if curiosity gets squeezed out of us? Mm-hmm. Yeah. I hear you. And it's a shame. I guess I'm thinking about how when I've been at my best, when there's a new person who comes and asks sort of new person mm-hmm. questions, sometimes that's sort of annoying. Like, uh, oh, didn't, isn't this all covered already? <laughs> but when I'm on my game, I thought, oh, what a lovely fundamental question to ask. And, you know, I guess I didn't look at it that way, uh, way back when I invented this process. So that's beautiful. But you're saying something important that a reaction of, oh, maybe this was covered already. Mm-hmm. So when I am the person joining and coming into the organization, I'm thinking, I'm not sure, but I think I have this question. I love to ask it. Often we don't ask it because we're fundamentally fearful that there is going to be a judgment. And what's interesting about small children, when there are three or four, that is not there at all. In fact, just this morning, I um, was talking to my uh, son and he was noticing that his underwear got way too tight. And so he had this uh, nice red marks on around his belly. And he turned to my nanny and said, hey, do you also get the red marks <laughs> on your belly because of wearing tight underwear? And you should have seen the embarrassed face of my nanny who knows him really well. But again, that's an example where it's a perfectly fair question. And he's just curious about asking. He had no way of thinking that there is going to be a judgment attached to that question. And I think that that's what we learn and what we become fearful of as we grow older. We are much more aware that there are other people who might judge us in all sorts of ways. And fundamentally, we want to belong and be part of the group. And so we stop asking questions. Mm-hmm. Well, and I'd also love to hear more about, so we're talking about curiosity and it's almost like we're just assuming and taking for granted that curiosity is good. And I like it. It's fun. It's interesting. Keeps things spicy and interesting. Could you lay it out for us? What difference does it make if you have a team who is highly curious versus highly not curious? 
Yeah. So that's a really important question. There is a business case for curiosity. Curiosity leads to more creative ideas, more innovation. It actually leads to better team performance because the team tends to be much more open in discussing ideas. It leads to conflict resolutions more quickly which I think is interesting and potentially counterintuitive. And it also leads to uh, broadening of networks. So, so this is data that I collected in a large study with a Canadian bank, where what we found was that if you look at curiosity as a trait, so you have a certain level of curiosity versus not or higher or lower, and then look at things like how do people communicate over email across functions or across departments. What you see is that the more curious people are, the more they tend to reach out to a variety of people in a way that really help them as they move throughout their career, in this case in the bank, but also in performing well in their jobs. So I think that the outcomes and implications of being curious are actually quite profound. Mm-hmm. Okay, thank you. I'll give you another one that is more recent and came from the fact that we're living through a crisis. So when we're curious, we are better able to look at stress as something that can enhance our performance rather than finding it to be paralyzing. So I think that in thinking about this idea of staying agile and transforming ourselves, staying curious is quite important. Mm-hmm. Okay, well then, so... How do you recommend that we go about continuing keeping curious? I think of curiosity as a turbocharger. And in fact, uh, back in 2018, I had a book coming out called The Rebel Talent. And curiosity is a really big talent that this rebel seems to have. And when I was thinking about what I had observed leaders and police across organizations do to retain their curiosity, some of the suggestions are very simple. And then since I'm a scientist, I went off and backed them up with data. But here are some simple ideas. First of all, adding learning goals for ourselves. So I think whether in our professional life, sometimes also in our personal lives, we have some form of performance goals for ourselves or a little mission that we want to accomplish. Adding learning goals can be incredibly helpful, not only in making our performance higher, but also in retaining our curiosity. And now when we talk about learning goals, what are the best practices in structuring those? Because I guess I could articulate a learning goal many different ways, which have many different implications for when I get to claim victory and, and how I go about approaching it. So how do we formulate that ideally? I'm curious now to see what you have in mind. So I would keep the same timeline that you have for your performance goals so that the two track together. And I, what we know from uh, theories and a lot of writings around goals is to make them somewhat difficult, but within reach. So um, having said all of that, if I think about one of my learning goals since uh, this whole crisis started was to learn piano. I've never played piano before. And the way now that's happening is with uh, one of my children actually teach me what he knows and often is uh, just memorizing songs rather than really understanding uh, the philosophy behind it. So Mm -hmm. Keeping ourselves honest. But again, even with that caveat, I think that is making me ask a lot of questions about something that fundamentally I don't know in a way that is quite positive. Mm -hmm. Certainly. And then imagine that would have some carryover into other domains. I'm thinking Mm -hmm. about 
Einstein and the violin. That was one of his things. And he thought this was an absolutely an excellent use of his time and energy and genius and, and working with children in particular because they asked great questions and they got things moving mentally in other areas. Yeah, that is good evidence that often not being entrenched and deeply specialized in a context or in an area of study um, can be helpful as you're trying to come up with something creative because you just have a fresh perspective rather than thinking through the old lenses of looking at that problem. Mm -hmm. Okay, well, that's one thing is to set some learning objectives. And it sounds like to the point of how they're articulated, maybe it doesn't matter that much, but you tell me, like, learn the piano. I mean, I could articulate that in terms of I will learn five songs on the piano. I will be able to play songs featuring 16th note triplets on the piano. Like, you know, we can have all sorts of levels of specificity or depth or not. What do you think? I think that just the general idea of having learning goals is important. Specificity, I think, can help so that you track your progress, which can be very motivating. So I love that part in what you said, uh, but not necessary per se. All right. Well, that's one practice is the learning objectives. What else? I love the idea of becoming people who actually model inquisitiveness for others. What are the opportunities to ask questions more often without that worry of being judged? In fact, many years ago, I took some improv comedy classes. It was actually a Christmas present for my husband to go to classes together. He hated it at first, <laughs> but then since the course was 10 weeks long, he actually got used to it and really uh, got to love it. But what I've learned from improv, one of the lessons, which really was an important one, is that curiosity and judgment cannot coexist. I think that it sounds simple, but it's actually profound. Think about when we are suggesting ideas in a meeting or we're just brainstorming or we're talking. I think that, or we're disagreeing. I think that curiosity can really be helpful. And when we model it for others, so we are the first one asking questions, really trying to understand the point of view of the person who's suggesting the idea or as a statement who's different from our own, we end up faring much better. And so mm. I think a lot about what are the opportunities where I can ask more questions without the fear of being judged. Let's talk about that fear for a bit. You know, to what extent is it real versus all in our minds? And is there a way we can clear the air or address it with their counterparts that we're mm. talking to? Or how do we tackle it? So surprisingly to many, asking questions is something that leads to positive outcomes. So this is a question that my colleagues and I actually studied. And what we found is that when we ask questions in conversations, in meetings, others end up judging us more positively and they also end up trusting us more and liking us more. And we looked at this in all sorts of contexts from meetings at work to speed dating <laughs> events. Uh, mm -hmm. Question asking does not lead to the, to the type of negative outcomes that we somehow expect to see. Yeah, I guess part of it probably depends on what the question is. You know, my wife and I, we have this recurring joke. When we had our first child, there was a class on taking care of your newborn <laughs> at the hospital. And we just thought it would be funny to say, wait, time out for a second. I, I keep hearing us saying the word baby. <laughs> What's that? So I guess like 
beyond the ridiculous, like, yeah, okay, we all know what a baby is. I guess there's some kind of a threshold in terms of if the, I mean, they say there are no stupid questions, but there kind of are some, you know, but then again, there's the judgment. <laughs> Mm-hmm. Help me out, Francesca. Yeah, so absolutely there are limits in the sense of there might in fact be questions where if you went through a welcoming process, like the example that you were using, you should know the answer. But I have to say that we often err on the side of not asking where we should ask. What we tend to forget, which I think is quite interesting, is that we feel that you are going to feel the cost of giving us an answer or helping us out, uh, figure out whatever it is that we're asking about. And what we forget is that it's actually flattering for you to be asked. So for instance, we've looked at this in the context of um, asking for advice. And what we find is that people feel fearful that I'm going to create cost on your time, uh, on... Uh, maybe a meeting that you don't want to have when in fact, the fact that I'm asking is actually quite flattering to you. Yeah, that's true. And, you know, I'm thinking about my buddy Maui here. He was episode number one and he's just a real mentor and inspiration and friend. And um, he will often ask me questions and I think you're so much smarter than I am (laughs) and better at this business, this industry that we're in. But I, I do, I really do feel flattered when he asks and not at all sort of put upon. Mm -hmm. So I think that makes sense. So we like them more, we trust them more, and we feel flattered when they ask the question, maybe because we perceive that they are really interested or really committed or really think that we have something to offer or are there any other sort of explanations or mechanisms by which that result comes to be? So you are mentioning them, that uh, people feel that they have something valuable to offer and that feels good. It doesn't feel like something negative or something at a cost. So I am hoping that the evidence that we have produced in this discussion is going to help people feel a little bit more comfortable next time that they want to ask or express their curiosity. And again, I'm not suggesting that they come up with questions if they don't have any. But what I'm suggesting is that with authenticity, if there is something that you're curious about, not to be afraid of being judged. Mm-hmm. Beautiful. Okay, so with that perspective understood, we have a little bit of insulation from the fear, just knowing, hey, actually, you know, you're probably gonna be better off asking those questions. Mm-hmm. Do you have any additional tips for the fear or things? Is there any magical phrases you might use to preface your questions that feel like they give you a little bit of cover or can be secure for you? It's interesting. We have not looked at that, but I guess giving an explanation for why you're asking can always be helpful because you're just giving the other side a little bit more context uh, for where your question is coming from. I should also say that one important application of what we're talking about and the use of curiosity is in situations where you're in disagreement with somebody. And I've seen this happening so many times at work, also in family conflict where you're in a heated situation. So we are butting head to head. And the thing that we end up telling ourselves is, oh, maybe you're not as committed as I am to this cause or to this project. Maybe you're not as smart as I am, or maybe you don't have the right capabilities as I have for this project and moving this forward. And if at that very moment, we remind ourselves of the importance of curiosity, there is a really important shift that happens. Because 
let's imagine I say, okay, now this turned out, you're as committed as I am to this, or you're as smart as I am in approaching this. Then you really start saying, then why is it that your view is so different from mine? And you really want to investigate and seek to understand. And so you're going to ask a lot of questions that the other side or the other people involved are really going to welcome. Oh, beautiful. Well, Francesca, tell me anything else you want to make sure to mention before we shift gears and hear about some of your favorite things. No, the other point to keep in mind is, which has become a reminder for myself is uh, going through the day with more what if or how could we so that you consider alternatives. So I've become pretty good at trying to remind myself and then hopefully implement the idea of asking what could I do rather than what should I do? Since the could retains your curiosity and actually allows you to expand on the possibilities. Oh, clever, thank you. Well, now could you share with us a favorite quote, something you find inspiring? Break, transform, create. This is a quote that comes from Chef Massimo Bottura, and it's a great reminder of how we can all benefit from breaking away from tradition, routines, the usual way of working, and transform these routines to create something better in our own success. All right. And could you share a favorite study, experiment, or bit of research? These days, one of the pieces of research I'm reminded of, which I love, is the research that Carol Dweck has done on the idea of growth mindset. Mm -hmm. Thinking of others as people who have a lot to offer and whose intelligence and competencies can be developed rather than thinking of them as people whose intelligence and competence is fixed. That leads to very different interactions where we get to invest in them and in their development rather than not. All right. And how about a favorite book? A favorite book is the book called Yes And. It's a book that Kelly Leonard and Tom Yorton from Second City wrote about what it is that we all stand to learn from improv comedy. Mm -hmm. And a favorite tool, something you use to be awesome at your job? A favorite tool these days is Zoom. Right. <laughs> As I'm becoming much uh, better at trying to leverage virtual and make it fun. Mm -hmm. And how about a favorite habit? A favorite habit of mine is arriving at a time when I'm sitting down for dinner with my family, my four kids and my husband, and asking my children, what are the two or three things that they're grateful for? Mm -hmm. And how about a favorite nugget, something you share that people seem to quote back to you often and you're known for? I give it to you already. Rebelliousness can be constructive rather than destructive. Mm -hmm. And if folks want to learn more or get in touch, where would you point them? I would point them to either my personal website, francescagino.com, or my book website, rebeltalents.org. The book website has an interesting test potentially for those who listen in that can tell them which type of rebel they are. And if they come out as a pirate, is a very good thing. <laughs> I'm picturing the eye patch and the sword and the hat. You'd be Arr. surprised, you'd be surprised. <laughs> it was actually a really interesting organization to study as I was working on the book, because at a time when it was about 200 years before slavery ended in the United States, they were the most diverse organization on the planet. So just 
for that, I think they get a lot of credit, especially in in a world like the one that we're living through today. And they also were interestingly organized. So the crew was in charge of choosing the captain and the crew could actually remove the captain quite easily if the captain was not behaving well towards the crew. And to me, that raises the question that is one that I ask myself quite often, which is, am I the captain that my crew would choose as his leader today? And you can ask it if you're a parent, you can ask it if you are leading a group of people, you can also ask it in relationship to how you relate to your friends or to your spouse or to your colleagues. That is some fascinating stuff. I had no idea about this and the history of pirates. So where would you recommend if there was a book or a resource I could pick up to Educate myself on pirates. <laughs> so there I'm going to be self-serving since okay. I did a lot of integration across resources as I was working on the book. And so I will read uh, one of the chapters in Rebel Talent uh, that talks about the pirates. Mm-hmm. I'm scanning your table of contents right now. Oh, Becoming a Rebel Leader, Blackbeard, Flatness, and the Eight Principles of Rebel Leadership. That's exactly right. Page 191. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. All right. And uh, do you have a final challenge or call to action for folks looking to be awesome at their jobs? I would love for people to think about ways in which they can break away from their mold. As I was working on the book, I was surprised by how much courage it takes because we are breaking away from tendencies that we all have as human beings, but also our really satisfying and exciting the experience is. So if you're like me after you tried the rebel life, you won't want to go back. All right, Francesca, this has been fun. I wish you lots of luck in all of your rebellions. Thank you so much. I really, really appreciated Francesca's take how when you ask questions, there's hard scientific research data on this that folks actually have a better perception of you. So if you have that worry, that concern, like, oh, I don't want to be annoying or slow things down or look dumb because I have to ask all these follow-up or clarifying questions, nay, Francesca lays it down that, in fact, you score points by doing this and you get your questions answered. You're winning twice by winning, if you will. So Great stuff from Francesca. Again, the show notes, the transcript, the links to items we've referenced are at awesomeatyourjob.com slash EP584. If you haven't already, I recommend you push subscribe. You'll catch your next guest, John O'Leary, automatically will download to your device. And John, he is, wow, but one of the most positive and inspiring guests we've ever had. This one's a little bit lighter on the tools, but a bit more uplifting in terms of just mindset and positivity and inspiration. So I I think you'll like it. It's a taste of something different and it tastes good. So I hope you'll join us for John O'Leary. And until then, peace. Thanks for listening. To get the most out of the show, we recommend two key things. First, check out the extra resources at awesomeatyourjob.com. You can find this episode's transcript and links, as well as the perfect episode for your situation. You can search the full text transcripts of hundreds of episodes or explore episodes tagged by topic and competency covered. Second, subscribe to the podcast and get future episodes automatically. You can subscribe by telling Siri and several other smartphones and speakers, subscribe to the How to Be Awesome at Your Job podcast or by tapping subscribe in your podcast player of choice. If you'd like some extra help figuring out podcasts and how subscriptions work, visit awesomeatyourjob.com slash subscribe for guidance. 
hope to catch you on the next episode of How to Be Awesome at Your Job. Look around. You can find cars like these on AutoTrader. Like that car riding right your tail. Or if you're tailgating right now, all those cars doubling as kitchens and living rooms are on AutoTrader too. Are you working out and listening to this ad at the same time? Well, multitasking pro, cars like the ones in the gym parking lot are for sale on AutoTrader. New cars, used cars, electric cars, maybe even flying cars. Okay, no flying cars, but as soon as they get invented, they'll be on AutoTrader. Just you wait. AutoTrader.